This is the Education Gap Fly Show. We hired that Russian group to uh, hack into everybody's third grade test scores. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We have the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Scott Timberman. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Scott is a professor at Michigan State University and author of our newest report for our Fordham, Ohio office, Ohio's Lost Einsteins, The Inequitable Outcomes of Early High Achievers. We're going to talk all about that today, but first let's welcome my regular co-host, himself an early high achiever, David Griffith. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. <laughs> I, I'm making some assumptions there. I don't actually know if that's true. But yeah, I won't uh, ask how you know that. I was going to say I've, I've got everybody's third grade test. Scores. I mean, we we could ask from yeah, we could ask for David's third grade test scores. I'm from Oregon. There are none. Yes, I've, I've hired <laughs> that Russian group to uh, hack into everybody's third grade test scores. All right. Well, hey, Scott, we're super excited to have you on the show, even though, you know, Michigan State, uh, let's just put it right out here. I'm a, I'm a big Michigan guy. Oh, no. so, yes. And, you know, I can be excited about that right now because we're in a strange part of the football season where we haven't yet lost a game. That's only a matter of time. If I'm, predict- I'm predicting your first loss is going to come on October 30th. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're being very kind if we don't uh, lose before. Well, anyway. or at least possibly your second or third. All right, but we're here not to talk about football. We're going to talk about Scott's great new report for Ford, and let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, Scott, so Ohio's Lost Einsteins, at the title, a uh, hat tip to Raj Chetty and his colleagues who did a report a few years ago about Lost Einsteins, about Look, kids who show great promise when they're young and then something happens along the way and they kind of fall back down to earth. What you did is you followed an amazing group of thousands and thousands of kids in Ohio from third grade all the way into college. And you were able to look at kids who popped up as high achieving in those early grades in reading or math. I think we define it as in the top 20% of the state population and then saw how they did over time. And, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, you know, but some of those kids do kind of head towards the mean. That's not so surprising. The other kids replace them in the distribution. But what's most sobering here is that if you are poor or black, you are much more likely to show that regression to the mean over time, less likely to go on to take AP classes or do well on the AP test, less likely to take the ACT, less likely to enroll in college and less likely to be identified as gifted in the first place. Mm-hmm. Are those the highlights? Did I miss anything? That's kind of the big part of particularly like the first part of the study. What I found was that there are these substantial gaps developing among high achievers, which is not surprising, you know, given that we know that there are a lot of gaps in general in terms of race and economic status and educational mm-hmm. outcomes. But I think it's just notable that here we're kind of focusing in on this group of kids who early on in their educational careers, as early as it could look, which is third grade, which is probably, frankly, not early enough. You know, Mm -hmm. ideally we can see this uh, a bit earlier. But, you know, these kids are doing well by third grade, right? They're they're performing highly. And what happens is they start kind of branching out. Uh, in that, you know, some some do better and some don't. And it seems to be that minority students and low-income students are 
performing much poorer than, than other students in terms of what happens later on in life. In some sense, there seems to be something in between going on. And, we, you know, I don't really know what that is. I have plenty of speculation for what it could be, but I haven't, wasn't able to look at it directly. But there are things going on in between that's, you know, exacerbating some of these gaps or students who don't really show much of a gap early on. And then, yeah. you know, they're, they're expanding out in that way. And, you know, there's all kinds of debates going on right now about how should we should set priorities in our education system, right? Uh, should we focus on the low achievers, on the high achievers? How do we think about the meritocracy today? You know, a lot of books out recently saying, oh, this meritocracy thing is a bunch of BS because all we have these days is that, you know, well-educated, wealthy parents are passing on their advantages to their kids, not just in terms of money, but in terms of their own educational uh, achievements. And so not surprisingly, we look at who's going to college and selective colleges. It's overwhelmingly, you know, affluent kids of well-educated parents. Uh, so, you know, that makes it hard sometimes to debate this question of, say, what should we do for affluent kids who themselves are showing a lot of promise academically, right? Are they going to be fine on their own? Set that aside, though, right? Another group where I think anybody, left, right, and center, could say the kids need to be a priority are the kids who are themselves grow up poor and yet, despite all their disadvantages, show up having strong skills in reading and or math, you know, that they do well in school. These are the kids for, you know, all throughout history. I think you're going back hundreds of years. It's certainly in America and other places, too. People have said, you know, we want to do everything we can to help any talented person from all walks of life be able to fulfill their full potential, especially those kids coming from poor areas. And so, you know, these lost Einsteins, it just feels like there should be tons of interest within our education system and doing all we can. Sorry, that's my soapbox. The, uh, <laughs> Good question, Mike. It's your podcast. You're allowed to soapbox. <laughs> exactly. So where's the question? So, yeah, the question is, what is happening to these kids? Now, you know, it could be just that as they continue to live in poverty, as they continue to maybe attend schools that are not as well resourced or just not as high quality, Maybe they don't have access to as good teachers that you see that impact start to show up over time, right? So the effects of home and the effects of school, uh, in terms of those specific things, the one thing we can see is that in general, they're less likely to at least be identified as gifted, right? So that's one place to start. There is a potential starting point. And, you know, I don't know, I can't tell from this how much of that gap is due to differential access to gifted and talented programming. You know, the evidence on the impacts of gifted and talented programming are somewhat mixed. Now, in this particular study, you know, I did look at that and I did find some modest positive achievement effects from students being identified as gifted and talented. And notably, the effects were substantially larger for Black students, although the estimates were not precise. So it's hard to, you know, you can't really statistically say it was bigger uh, the effects were bigger for Black students than for uh, other students, but it was notable that there were these larger estimates there. So it's not clear, I think, whether the gift and talented resources are driving these gaps, but there is, I think, a pretty clear difference in access to these resources. Yeah. At least theoretically, we would think that it would have, you know, it should have some impact and definitely seems to be that wealthier districts in particular are more likely to offer these programs and do them in a way that's, you know, more well-funded than less wealthy districts. Scott, can I ask a question? My suspicion has always been 
that if you walk into the average high poverty classroom, there is much more variation in baseline achievement than there is if you walk into a richer classroom. Similarly, my suspicion is that if you walk into a high poverty school, you're going to see kids with drastically varying baseline achievement, baseline ability. The first column I wrote when I came to Fordham was called Differentiated to Death. And I tried to describe what it was like teaching ninth grade social studies to a classroom where there were kids who who couldn't read. And they were literally at what I would consider a first or second grade level. Is that something that you were able to see in the data or anything? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the data on the kind of those within classroom distributional pressure. That's actually a very interesting question that I haven't really thought of before. Do you see a higher variance in student performance, uh, or I should say student performance, but like, you know, the student's level, academic level in lower income schools? So I don't know the answer to that, but I think your intuition is correct that if that is the case, you would have teachers struggling more because it is more difficult for a teacher to target instruction when you have a broader base of of academic performance in the classroom. Yeah, although I think there's also some debate as to, you know, while there theoretically there is that difficulty targeting instruction, there's also some debate as to what the overall benefits are of that, right? You you can see, kind of think about some sort of various like peer effects that could actually, right, that if you are a lower achieving student, you have some higher achieving students around you to help lift you up, and that could be a positive. But yeah, in terms of the teaching, I, I think you're right that it would be more difficult to actually do the teaching. And that's, look, that's a huge point, right, is that surely these low-income kids have lower-achieving peers in general than the more affluent kids who are high-achieving. Just by looking at the means, I think that's right. And so, you know, that's one point of the gifted programs is to give the high-achievers a chance at least part of the day to be around other high-achieving kids. Now, there may not be a lot of other high-achieving kids in some of these schools, but even if they're not super high achieving, you know, we would argue, look, every school in the country, including high poverty schools, should have some program for the five or 10% of the highest achieving kids in those schools to give them a chance to, again, really be around other high achievers for part of the day to, to get challenged, to get enrichment, to zoom ahead. And, you know, it does appear that probably if you're affluent, you're more likely to get those opportunities when you may not need them as much because your own peers in the regular classrooms are much closer in achievement to where you are, most likely. And plus, you already have the background resource, family resources and the you know, other school resources. It makes me wonder, you know, if we should even do, just think much bigger, right? I mean, one thing is, okay, gifted programs or, or other kinds of ability groupings. You know, I feel like we should find a way to get to these kids and their families as early as third grade and let them know you have something very special here and you've got this huge potential. And in fact, in Ohio, third grader, we are going to admit you right now into the you know, class of 2031 at Ohio State University. You know, that if you just maintain these test scores and get good grades and get good behavior, you, know, you have a scholarship waiting for you to get in and use loss aversion you know, to get their attention. Mike, working in the behavioral economics. I like it. That's an interesting policy. I've not heard about incentivizing people at uh, elementary school by basically giving them admission already. (laughs) Maybe it'll work in Ohio. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting idea, though. I mean, I think just in general to kind of let a lot of students know, and I think this is one issue 
And this is, again, something that I think is more problematic in low-income areas. And if you think to some of the work that uh, Hoxby has done and Avery on kind of, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with like the yeah. missing one-offs, right? right. Yeah. These kids who are in these locations, they found typically more rural locations, but I think it applies equally to any school where, you know, essentially your peers are not typically going to college or going to, mm-hmm. you know, elite colleges. And a lot of these students just don't know that they that they can do it, that they they have the ability to be successful there. And maybe about getting some people comfortable with the idea that a you know college should be a goal for you, particularly a college like Ohio State early on. And that, you know, and here's what you need to do to reach that goal. And that we're going to give you the support. And this is the key thing, right? We're right. going to give you the support network and the resources to get you to that. Yeah. You know, the plan sounds great, but without putting the resources and the support networks behind it, you know, it's not going to be that successful. Well, right. And, you know, of course, these things exist, right? The gear up programs or, you know, Bloomberg's put a lot of money into some of these kinds of things or, but they tend to start a lot later. Right. They start in, in, often in high school, if not, maybe sometimes in middle school. And a bunch of these kids, you've already lost them by then. I mean, this is, uh, David knows this. I'm obsessed with elementary schools, especially early elementary schools. I just think that's where the ball game is. It's where it is. David, my kids are older now. They, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? <laughs> there was a relationship there at one point. But now, look, I mean, that's just where most, you know, kids make so much more progress or not in those early grades than any other time, you know. And so we can capture these kids when they're early and help keep them on that path, you know, versus suddenly we wait till ninth grade and we look around. We're like, oh, my God, they're, you know, we don't have that many kids, uh, low-income kids or Black or Hispanic kids who are, you know, on the track for readiness to college, especially the elite colleges. And we say, what should we do about it? It's too late. You know, I know a lot of people have reasonable uncomfortableness with the idea of ability grouping or gifted classes. There are ways you could do this that can improve that, you know, where you could still keep like kind of a broad-based classroom. I mean, you know, you can have after-school enrichment. You can have you know, kind of some, you know, dedicated resources for additional, uh, you know, support, uh, supports and things for students where you don't have, to, you know, if you don't want to go the route of ability grouping, I think you could still do things to help improve the situation. Yeah, here's the thing, Scott. I mean, and I, I actually, I don't disagree with that. It's become the sort of central truths have become more apparent to me. And one of them, I think, right, is that if you think there's any kind of equity efficiency trade-off in education, I happen to think there's actually a savage equity efficiency trade-off in education, and you think we are probably going to have a relatively segregated school system for the foreseeable future, then if you insist on equity within low-income Black schools, you are institutionalizing the achievement gap. If you insist on bringing up every single student in lockstep First of all, it won't happen. And second of all, if the same policies don't apply in the richer white schools, you're basically institutionalizing racial and socioeconomic achievement gaps. Efficiency is equity in a segregated system. It just is. And I wish that sort of weren't the way that the system is set up. I've found this really difficult to accept. But the longer I've looked at it, the harder it is to refute. Scott, this is how we roll. No, no, no. But look, this is... A- Super important study, again, and a really important topic. We're going to keep coming back to this, but can't thank you enough, Scott. My pleasure. And thank you for pushing me to take this on. 
it was a lot of work, but I think I'm really happy with the way things came out. And I really hope this work is going to be particularly useful for policy in Ohio, but also, you know, beyond that as uh, going forward. I think it will. So again, check it out, everybody. Ohio's Lost Einsteins, The Inequitable Outcomes of Early High Achievers. Scott Emberman, uh, again, thanks so much for joining us. Hope you come back sometime soon. Absolutely. More than happy to whenever you want. Thank you so much. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Such a great study that our Ohio team did there with Scott on high achieving, our early high achievers. I got to say, I'm I'm excited that Ohio is becoming one of the marquee states for studies like this one. I know, I know. They added this indicator of gifted services. What, how many years ago? Gifted identification. Identification, not services. That's right. Forgot. (laughs) But just to be able to, you know, have student level data, be able to follow kids, you know, all the way through and connect it with things like AP and ACT and college going. So I know from our home state even. So yeah. Sorry, North Carolina, but we're all tired of doing studies. <laughs> oh, I know. Wowza. All right. Well, speaking of geography, where are you taking us today? We are going to Massachusetts. Uh, we Ooh. have a new NBER working paper conducted by Sarah Cahodes and James Feigenbaum. I know we know Sarah from our EAPS program. Don't think we're familiar with James's work, but they pair up to leverage school lotteries to analyze charter attendance impacts on academic outcomes, but also the newer wrinkle, uh, also the impacts on voting outcomes. So they're trying to determine whether the academic gains produced by these Boston charter schools translate into increased civic participation in a causal sense. The only other, I try to remind myself of what we know about this, the only other lottery-based study that we have on charters and voting was focused on democracy prep and it showed increases in voter participation. But I guess the remaining question was, you know, whether you need a civics focus like democracy prep has in order to see these types of benefits. Right. That was explicitly in its mission was to do that. Right. right. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like we don't have a lot of other studies about this sort of connection between education and voting. Voting. Just uh, one more, I think, by Andrew McCacken, but didn't use lottery-based data. Okay. All right. They study applicants to Boston charters from the classes of 2006 to 2017. They match student data to voter files from Massachusetts and nearby states, too to account for out-of-state moves and nearby college attendance. The voting data include party registration and election turnout in elections from 2008 to 2018. Their sample includes all 12 Boston charter schools, so not a huge number, but all 12 with lottery records that enrolled students who were at least 18 by the 2016 general election. They measure voter participation as ever voted, as well as participation in the first presidential election after a student turns 18. And then for a subset of Boston students, they're also able to link parents to voter files to assess whether charter school attendance or losing the lottery incents parental voting after the charter lottery occurs. They observe voting prior to the lottery to help control for selection They use a two-stage least squares methodology to exploit the natural experiment created by charter school lotteries via randomly assigned offers of charter school seats. First, they present results that repeat the findings from earlier studies, 
showing, I think most of our listeners are aware of these earlier studies that showed Boston charters are showing large gains and scores on state exams, AP test taking, AP scores, SAT scores, college enrollment, and so on. So they're able to replicate those findings. But then they turn to the focus of the paper, which is effects on voting. They find that charter school attendance makes little difference in the likelihood of registering to vote in Massachusetts. So many students around 45% register to vote by their 19th birthday, regardless of their lottery status, but charter attendance does boost the rate at which students ever vote from about 44 to 50%, which is a six percentage point increase. When they drill down and look at the types of elections, however, they find that the main effects are driven by presidential elections. Charter attendance did not impact voting in non-presidential general elections or in the primaries. Then they look at voting gains and they kind of look at different subgroups and they find that the gains come almost entirely from a boost in girls voting in their first possible presidential election. The difference in voting in this case is 12.5 percentage points for girls and none for boys. Besides gender, they find that voting impacts are driven to a lesser extent by students who receive free and reduced price lunch. The last part of it, just a little bit more, then they dive into mechanisms. I love that more and more of these, you know, sophisticated studies are trying to look into the black box and get a gauge on mechanisms. They hypothesize that measures of non-cognitive skills, specifically days of high school attendance and SAT taking, serve as proxies for persistence and follow-through. And these are the same types of skills that you need to sign up and vote. So they dig into this hypothesis. They find that the attendance effect, like the voting effect, operates entirely by changing girls' behavior, such that girls attend 22 more days of school than their control peers, but there's no difference for boys. Likewise, attending a charter school boosts SAT taking more so for girls than for boys. Since these differences align with the patterns in voting, they surmise that charters' impact on these non-cognitive skills may be the path towards civic participation for girls. And finally, with parents, they find that charter school attendance appears to have a small positive impact on the likelihood that a parent votes, with the important caveat that this voting impact was driven by the 2016 election when charter schools likely encouraged parents to vote, given that that was when the charter school cap ballot uh, measure was happening in that election. And we know how crazy that was. So it was driven mainly by that election. I don't know, Mike, I guess I'll close because I I know we're going to pick up on this thread, but we just seem like we're hearing more and more about the challenges that young boys face. And I I think we need to take heed of that. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go, Amber. You know, I've been working on a piece, you know, there's been kind of a pundit palooza lately about the crisis around boys, again, uh, because of some recent data showing that college attendance uh, is becoming even more skewed in favor of females. Uh, In recent years, it already has been for a long time and, you know, trying to figure out why that is. And and look, I think this question about whether some educational interventions are showing positive impacts, mostly because of positive impacts they're having on girls, Mm -hmm. maybe including some of these charter school impacts, I think is something we really got to dig into. I mean, I remember looking a while back at some of the attendance patterns in some places like in DC, it was kind of an open secret that many of the high performing magnet schools were overwhelmingly female. 
And at least at one point when I checked, that was also the case for some of the high performing charter schools, especially Mm -hmm. at the high school level. Now, I think the schools at the time, they didn't, for example, have high school football teams as often. Right, right. They now have fixed that. You know, KIPP DC, for example, I think has become something of a football powerhouse. And that (laughs) that helps to recruit boys and to keep boys uh, who want that as a part of their experience. But uh, I think this is something we got to keep digging into. And again, it's look, if it's having positive impacts on girls, that's great. Right. You just might ask ourselves whether there's something else or a different model or different something we need to do to have similar positive impacts on boys. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I don't think that civic participation is, is tailored more to girls than boys. You know, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what, what would it be that would be drawing uh, more of one gender than the other? It's, it's hard to say. Right. And also just this finding that, you know, it may have nothing to do with interest in civics, for example, mm-hmm. that, that girls follow through and vote. That just may be, mm-hmm. as they surmise, just about non-cognitive skills of follow through, right? right? Which can show up in everything. Right. I mean, you know, I know Robert Pernicio has made the case that voting isn't that great of an outcome measure for civics, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's, it's really hard to pin it down. I mean, what you really want to mm-hmm. know is, do people follow the news? Do they participate in thoughtful debates? Do they show up for <laughs> candidate forums? I don't know. I mean, there's other kinds of things, but we have right, data on right. voting. That's where right. the drunk has dropped That's his right. keys under the light. And hey, it's better than nothing and tells us something. You know, and I guess it shouldn't surprise us that in general, young men are not known for necessarily being great at follow through. And, and here we see that again. <laughs> Perseverance and follow through, all these things, uh, filling yeah. out forms. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess we could go there. Um, well, look, if we carried it out to age 30, maybe some of these things wash out by then. You know, right. again, as I've dug into it, I mean, there is some evidence that just the male brain develops more slowly and, you know, it eventually gets there. It eventually catches up, but. In, uh, and you don't want to ask for directions. Is that what this is all about? <laughs> we going with iPhones? Who needs directions? All right. Oh man, well, it could go back to just this very simple truth that we know and love. All right, Amber, very cool stuff. Thanks so much for bringing us that. And Indeed. I love it. So much interesting stuff that's come out of the Boston Charter Schools over the years. So absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, but that is all the time that we have for this week. So until next week, I am Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.